0: I want to preface everything by saying that unlike part one of this loosely fitted uh, series that I'm in, um, unlike part one, uh, this message this morning is less about what's going on in our world right now. And let's be honest. There's an awful lot going on in our world. But this morning's message is less about what's going on in in the world and more about what it looks like when we make the massive error of taking our eyes and taking our focus off of Jesus Himself. Okay? Okay? Now, when I say take our eyes off Jesus, I am not talking about taking our eyes off of church. I'm not talking about taking our eyes off our denomination. I'm not talking about taking our eyes off our traditions or some history that we have in the faith. None of those things are Jesus. Did everybody hear what I said? None of those things are Jesus. There's only one thing that is Jesus. And it's Jesus. (laughs) And we need to keep our eyes fixed on Him and Him alone. Okay? Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 22. We're going to start in verse 1. something weird is happening, I used to not be able to read my sermons at this distance without my readers, and now I can't read them with them. It's so weird. I'm sitting here going, that's not good. Oh, that'll work. Yeah, okay. So, and I'm going to be honest with you, no one has spit in dirt and made mud and rubbed it in my eyes. I promise you, no one has. Luke 22, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. For they were afraid of the people. This sentence right here is really important. I want you to take this next sentence and I want you to internalize it because this one's important for our story. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot one of the twelve. That quite possibly is the most important line of Scripture that we're even going to be discussing today. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot one of the twelve. I know we run around calling him Judas Iscariot like the first and last name. Iscariot's not his last name. Just for the record, if anybody doesn't know this, I'm just gonna, this has nothing to do with the sermon. This is what's technically known in Bible colleges and institutions everywhere, a rabbit trail. Everybody laugh now. Thank you. Appreciate it. Iscariot is is a word derived from his home place. He's from Kerioth. He's a Keriothite. And Iscariot means from. Kerioth. Judas from Kerioth. That's what that is, okay? So just know that. Why some people have that kind of name in the Bible and others don't, can't tell you. But that's what that means. But this man, Judas, one of the twelve, Satan had access to him. And he entered him. Moving on. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. Now listen to this. This is your religious elite for you in this day and age. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Now concerning... This exact same transaction. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, says this, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty pieces of silver, From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This morning, I would like to discuss in your hearing the subject of Useful Idiots, Part 2, 30 Pieces of Silver. I'm going to be honest with you this morning. At first rub, maybe it's my income tax bracket, I don't know. But at first rub, 30 pieces of silver sounds like a pretty good deal for a little more than um, leisurely We're doing some leisure reconnaissance and providing some easily obtained intel. 30 pieces of silver sounds like a pretty good deal if you ask me. Now, silver is often thought of as the poor man's gold. In fact, if you watch any television at all, you're going to see a myriad of commercials come across your screen advertising how you can invest in physical gold. And in little print underneath it says, and silver. So silver is kind of one of those things like, if you're your regular run-of-the-mill blue collar, I don't have a whole bunch of money to drop Well over $2,000 an ounce on gold. But you're into the whole precious metal thing? You buy silver. After all, just this last week, silver was selling for $23.06 per ounce. That's a whole lot better than somewhere in the neighborhood of $2,400 an ounce. So, in reality, when we look at silver and we look at these 30 coins, the Old Testament refers to these coins as shekels. So, and I'm, we'll get to that Old Testament reference here shortly, but those 30 silver coins weighing roughly 12 ounces is what one uh, uh, source said Judas made less than $275 that day. Less than $275. And I believe that's adjusted for inflation. Now when you look at it that way, that's not nearly as good a deal as one might initially think. One like myself. Now, don't get me wrong. I'll take $275 all day long. But when you think about the transaction that went down and why it went down, that's not nearly as good a deal as one might initially think. In fact, the only real value in these 30 silver coins is their intrinsic stability the intrinsic stability of silver in the precious metal markets. In 2016, those 30 silver coins would have gone between 250 and $300. And today they're going for about 275 I dare say silver's pretty stable. Yes? You're going, wow, this is really not praise God stuff. I know. In reality... About everything that I'm going to say this morning, Stephanie, isn't very praise God stuff. I'm warning you in advance. So, modern value of silver aside, what Judas made in this transaction aside, what the priests doled out in terms of payment aside, why did the priests offer 30 pieces of silver? And More importantly, at least in my opinion, why did Judas settle for 30 pieces of silver? Why that amount specifically? Well, this whole story kind of starts um, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. We're going to take the long way around to make a point. In Matthew 26, beginning in verse 6, this is where we find Jesus at Bethany. And he's at at Simon's house. You know, the Simon the leper. This is that dinner party being given in in, um, honor of Jesus. Um, He's there at Simon's house. They're eating supper, dinner, whatever you want to call it. And he's there reclining. Why? Because that's how they ate in that country at that time. Uh, We have dinner tables. And if anyone has ever seen The Passion of the Christ... There is actually one humorous scene in there. It's where Jesus is building a table for a customer. His mother walks in and says, What are you doing? He explains. She mocks, sits down to it and says, It'll never work. So he's reclining at the table, and suddenly a woman enters the house, and this woman proceeds to break all social norms all accepted social norms she destroys them in a single move she approaches jesus and with her is she's carrying this expensive jar made of alabaster containing a thing called Nard, a very, very, very expensive perfume/ slash ointment, and she proceeds to empty the entire vessel on Jesus' head. Apparently, that's not supposed to be done at that time of, in history, in Jewish culture. Why do I think that? Because the Bible says that when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Have you ever been guilty of being the person who saw someone in desperate need or who identifies Jesus as the source that met a need for them and they stepped outside the acceptive norms of Christendom and church religiosity, and you said they should never have done that, and Jesus scolds you over it. I think, I'm going to be honest, my father-in-law, the second pastor in the history of this church, knows infinitely more about Scripture, Bible, practices, etc. than I do and ever will. But I'm going to be honest with you, Gary. I think sometimes we're more in love with church than we are with Jesus. Because we make church into Jesus. And Jesus isn't church. And here the disciples are, after all, They are Jesus' disciples. They are very important people. This is where we live. This is Jesus. I'm part of the posse. Don't break the rules. And in walks this woman and breaks every last one of them. And they completely lose their victory. They forget who they're sitting with. So the Bible says when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. And they were wondering how this woman could waste an entire jar of such expensive perfume arguing. And there's always an argument. And we're valid. Man, these arguments are good. We've got them down pat. That such a gift could have been sold and used to help the poor. John's gospel goes so far as to say the following, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, where have we heard that name? Oh, that's right. He's the guy who took the 30 pieces of silver, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wage. Now this goes hand in hand with the statement I told you about to make note of in our text, quite possibly the most important portion of Scripture we're going to read today. Make note of this right underneath that. He did not say this because He cared about the poor, but because He was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Put that right underneath. Satan entered Judas. Now keep in mind, this is one of the disciples. Enough said. Moving on. Yet, as Jesus heard these words, this indignant response, this, oh my word, what is she doing? Who does she think she is? What is? We could have done such great things with that. We could have bought a plane for our ministry. Yeah. That's what Christianity needs more planes for the ministry. Jesus heard these words. He turned. And what did He do? He commends the woman. He commends this woman who has this heart. And to just love and worship and give to Him. And He goes about explaining to all the people there surrounding Him that she poured out this perfume for His burial as she spared Absolutely no expense whatsoever to honor him. What's funny about this is Judas knows how much this perfume costs. He says it. This is worth a a year's wage. Now I want you to think about this. That year's wage by this woman was very likely a year's wage of some very ill-gotten gain. That was probably not what we like to call clean, honorable money. That was probably some pretty dirty money. And what does she do? Let me tell you something. If the Lord can redeem you, if the Lord can clean you, and He can redeem and clean me, trust me, He can clean dirty money. And it's not called laundering. In verses 14 through 16 of Matthew 26, we find that Judas was actually secretly negotiating and planning with the chief priests to deliver Jesus to them. Judas agreed to be paid the infamous thirty pieces of silver for the dep- for the betrayal. Okay, we're in Matthew 26. It's late, late in that gospel. There's only 28 chapters in Matthew. We're late in that Gospel. And all this is going on at Simon the leper's house. We've got a woman who takes a year's wages worth of perfume and anoints Jesus for His burial. And we've got Judas negotiating with the enemy. So let's all put this into proper perspective. On one hand... We've got a woman. She is a sinner. And the thing about this particular sinner is is that she is intimately aware of her sin. There's no contrivances here. There's no window dressing. Nothing like that. She knows exactly who she's been and she knows exactly who He is. That's why she anoints Him. Her, her, her worship, her thankfulness is so deep and so far-reaching that she says, I don't care about protocol. I'm going in there and I'm going to give him this, this offering because I have opportunity now, whereas some in, in two hours I may not have, he'll be gone. she spares no expense and pours this out on him in honoring him on the other hand what we have is a disciple joined by a few unscrupulous men who though they were who thought that they were above reproach untouchable without need of redemption plotting to kill Jesus, all for the price of 30 pieces of silver. Now, if you'll remember a few minutes ago, I asked the question, why 30 pieces of silver? What's that all about? In Hebrew culture, the first thing that we need to understand about 30 pieces of silver is it's not very much money at all. In reality, when you think about it, There's only a handful of people in our society that really thinks 275 bucks is a lot of money. And usually, and I I don't mean to sound as ugly as this is going to sound, but if you're a person who really thinks, oh my word, 275 bucks, I'm a millionaire, you're probably spending it on meth or alcohol. That's the only people who think 275 dollars is a lot of money. But in Hebrew culture, 275 bucks... 30 pieces of silver is not very much money at all. In fact, 30 pieces of silver is the exact price paid in the Old Testament to a master of a slave if that slave is accidentally and prematurely killed by an ox goring him to death. 30 pieces of silver. That's it. In fact, that amount is actually written in Mosaic Law for that offense. You can read it. Exodus chapter 21, verse 32. If the bull bull gores a male or female slave. Now the reason it's phrased, if the bull, that bull or that idea is discussed in length for multiple verses in Exodus chapter 21. So, at the end of this discussion, the statement is, if the bull gores a male or female slave, the owner must pay 30 shekels of silver to the master of the slave, and the bull is to be stoned to death. So, in order to compensate... For a slave's burial, it is written into the law that 30 pieces of silver would account for the cost. Interestingly, 30 pieces of silver, that exact amount, uh, appears in a prophecy in the book of Zechariah. That is later, that's the the, the discussion in Zechariah's prophecy. That discussion, it's, it's... Amazing how familiar it sounds. And that prophecy ends up, in its totality, being fulfilled later in Matthew's Gospel. Let's look for a second. In Zechariah chapter 11, God uh, God commands the prophet, Zechariah, to play the part of a shepherd. And pasture what the Scriptures say is a flock marked for slaughter. That's what it calls it. Now, a good amount of this prophecy that we're discussing right now isn't really applicable for the specific purposes that we have today in this message and this topic. But the portion of it that is, is definitely worthy of note. In this prophecy, those individuals who Zechariah worked for as a shepherd were told by him. Look at the scriptures on the screen. Zechariah 11. Oh, it's not on the screen. I forgot. We don't have a screen today. Yeah, look at the screen everybody and everybody's like, "Wow." Don't look at the screen. You'll be bored and really ill-informed. Okay? But if you have your if you have your Bible, ha, that's funny. If you have your Bible, Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12. Listen to what it says. This is the prophet speaking. If you like, give me my wages. Listen, whatever I am worth, but only if you want to. So, they counted out for my wages thirty pieces of silver. Enough for a slave's accidental death at the horns of a troublesome head of cattle. That's what he was paid. Zechariah's sarcastic response to his paycheck is punctuated with the description of his pay. This is what Zechariah referred to it as. He says, "...the handsome price at which they valued me." Remember, 30 pieces of silver in Hebrew uh, culture, not very much money. So he's being sarcastic, meaning that the payment of 30 pieces of silver was completely and totally inadequate. However, like the priests in our Gospels of Luke and Matthew, Zechariah's employers purposely meant to insult him. And in return, God told the prophet these words, Throw it to the potter. Zechariah 11 and 13 says, And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the thirty pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. Now, anyone here who is familiar with the New Testament accounts of Christ's arrest, incarceration, torture, and death knows what all of these things are pointing at. We know it frontwards and backwards because we recognize the terminology. The events that unfolded in Zechariah are a prophecy of what was to come regarding Jesus' death. When Judas bargained with the priests in order to uh, betray Jesus, he asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver Him to you? The priests then counted out 30 pieces of silver. They considered the cost of Jesus' death to be that of a slave gored to death By a bull. What does David say in Psalm 22? How he speaks of he is surrounded by the bulls of Bashan. David speaking of the crucifixion. Later, when Judas was overcome with guilt for betraying Jesus, he fulfilled Zechariah's prophecy and threw all he was paid into the temple. As a result, the priests used the money to buy a field from who? A potter known as the potter's field as Zechariah had predicted. Overcome with remorse, Judas then went to that field and hung himself. Wow, this is just happy stuff, isn't it? Man! Who just wants to get up and shout? Right now. Okay, I've got zero takers on the floor. Zero takers. That's okay. Because this isn't supposed to be happy. This is supposed to be informative. You say, Michael, where are you going with all of this? I'm going to tell you. Useful idiots for the price of 30 pieces of silver. Last week, or two weeks ago, I think David was here last week, we discussed useful idiots in the framework of both communism and its roots and its link to Satanism. And the thing that's common about both of those philosophies, both of those belief systems, The thing that's common is that although they promise much, they deliver very, very little. Communism. And I'm sure this came out of the mouth of Lucifer himself while he still occupied the heavens. A utopian... Workers' society. That's communism at its core. Redistribution of wealth. Abortion on demand. LGBTQ plus rights and protections. Virtually any social justice cause that you can conceive of. Antifa. BLM. Oh, and let's not forget pro-Hamas. Pro-Palestinian demonstrations. Let's not forget that. It's funny how when The likes of the groups that I just spoke of come to my mind, especially this most recent revealing of the darkness and the deception that runs rampant in the minds and the hearts of people of America, not to mention around the world. And I hear pro-Palestine, pro hamas all I can think of is give us Barabbas! They promise a lot. But they deliver very, very little. You see, here's the thing we need to understand about Judas and his 30 pieces of silver. We need to understand about what's happening in our world and our response to this. We have to recognize that What's happening in people's lives and they don't recognize it. All of it. Every last bit of it. In my mind and to my perspective and my point of view is it's all nothing more than the temptation of Christ. All of it. It's all exactly the same. The devil promises... That if you'll just do this, if you'll just believe this, if you'll just compromise on this, I will give you all of that. It's all the same. Brothers and sisters, it's all the same. It's all a lie. It is a bold faced, full frontal lie. John chapter 8, verse 44 You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Listen. Not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in Him. If you have something come to your heart, mind, and spirit, and you're wondering, man, I don't know if that's the Lord or not. Look at me. The Bible says unequivocally two things. One. My sheep know My voice. Two, He does not hold the truth, for there is no truth in Him. When He lies, He speaks His native language, for He is a liar and the father of lies. Christian, you listen to me. You know your Lord's voice. If it doesn't sound like Him, you look at Me. It's not Him. He is the Father of lies. When did He conceive of lies? In the presence of God. That's when He conceived of lies. The same stick that He used on Eve he used on one-third of the angels. Oh, surely, this isn't going to be like that. Look at me. Everybody looking. If he said it, yeah, it's going to be just like that. Judas Iscariot fell prey to deception. Remember? Remember the first part of the message? Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, and one of the twelve. Scholars, I remember being in Bible college and hearing this discussion, scholars have long theorized about what motivated Jesus, uh, Judas to betray Jesus. I mean, there's uh, there's all kinds of it out there. The one that might make the most sense to me is that he was actually attempting to force Jesus' hand to overthrow Rome. If he gets himself in trouble, and he gets himself thrown in jail, well then maybe he's just going to go, okay, this is over, let's do this, and overthrow Rome. Liberate Israel! Woo-hoo! But it's all speculation. It's all theory. No one knows. All we know is that Satan entered Judas. Why? Why could Satan enter Judas? Remember the most important part of Scripture today? Yeah, he said enter Judas because Judas gave him a door. He held the money and he was a thief having no concern for the poor. That's the kind of man he was. And that's why Satan entered him. And once he entered, that was it. The bottom line is it doesn't matter why Judas betrayed Jesus. It it doesn't matter one bit. What matters is that Judas went from being a disciple of Christ to Satan's useful idiot. All for 30 pieces of silver, 275 bucks. Promises a lot and delivers very, very little. Why did he become a useful idiot? How did that all play out? This is how. Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 5. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. (laughs) This is what you want your pastor to say when you come and confess something to them. What is that to us? That's your responsibility. So, in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy... Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then, he went away and hanged himself. That, ladies and gentlemen, is happy day for the devil. When he uses you and he discards you because you're a useful idiot. You've bought bought the lie. You've bought the deception. That's what's happening in our world, brothers and sisters. That is what's happening in the world. Now, I'm going I'm to let you know in advance. We're going to continue talking about this in the weeks to come. Because we need to understand, as the body of Christ, why people have lost their mind. It's really simple. It's really simple. They're deceived. They don't see the light that you possess. And I'm going to be honest with you. Body of Christ, listen to me. This world is going to become more and more risky for you and for me. Such is the price. Chip, I'd have you read the story about Polycarp right now if we had it right available. We'll use that in the future spectacular story. A disciple of John. Man, Chip read it just yesterday to the men's group, which was a great gathering, by the way. Chip and the guys who uh, helped out with the men's group. Such a great meeting. If you didn't come, if you didn't have opportunity, you need to come. November 18th, 9 o'clock. November 18th, 9 o'clock. Next, CWC men's. But that's what's happening. They've lost their minds because they've lost the light. And the body of Christ needs to be the light. Amen? That's what we are. It's not like Jesus said it in, in the Sermon on the Mount. You don't walk around people as light and put a bushel over you. You don't hide the light. In fact, you live in such a way that you can't hide it. stand with me this morning.